You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the class on Christology, part of International Catholic University with Dr. Ralph McInerney. My name is Michael Dauphiné. I have a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of Notre Dame. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was an undergraduate at Duke University, where I majored in all things in engineering. Afterwards, I just wanted to get interested in engineering, not just physical reality, but spiritual reality. So I began to study theology. I did a master's in theology from Duke Divinity School, and then I went on to do my PhD at Notre Dame, as I mentioned. From there, I taught at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I was professor of theology for one year. And then I came to where I am now presently, Ave Maria College in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where I'm professor of theology and also serve as academic dean there. Before we begin this class, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Father, you've revealed yourself to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us through our study of your church's teaching on Christ to know more deeply the bridegroom of the church, the Lord, the giver of life, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord and our God. And we pray the prayer that he taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to give you a brief overview of the 12 lessons that I have planned out for Christology. There are many different ways to begin in Christology, a more systematic approach and a historical approach. I've chosen to try to integrate both. So we will be proceeding largely historically, but we will take up many systematic questions about the person and the mystery of Christ. The first three lectures, we're going to concentrate on the sacred scriptures themselves, on the Old Testament and the New Testament, following Vatican II's teaching in Dei Verbum that the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of theology. Uh, we want to begin our reflection about the person of Christ, our study of Christology, with deep reflection on Christ as he is presented in the Old and the New Testaments. The first lesson will be on Christ in the Old Testament. The second lesson will be Christ in the Gospels. And from there, we will move to St. Paul's reflections and meditations on Christ, especially in some of his hymns and his letters. After that period, where we look at the scriptures themselves, we will turn to the first centuries of the church, especially the first seven centuries of the church, in which the church was faced with many different heresies, many different views, as people tried to understand how this one person, or this one being, Jesus Christ, was both God and man, and often fell into mistaken views about that person, and the church had to correct those. For the next three lessons, I like to refer to as controversies and creeds. The controversies that led to the creeds and the creeds that attempted to guide the church forward in her reflection about the person of Christ. And we will move from the apostolic age right after scripture to the Council of Nicaea, to the councils of Ephesus, Chalcedon, and all the way up 
to Maximus the Confessor in the Third Council of Constantinople almost at the end of the seventh century, which is largely seen as the finalization of the first stage of the main patristic era where many of the Christological questions are initially settled or the parameters for those are laid out. Afterwards, I want to look at St. Thomas Aquinas. We're going to study St. Thomas specifically to see how he drew together as kind of a medieval synthesis on the reflection on the person of Christ, but also see what he added to the discussion of Christ. And in many ways, the whole presentation that I'm giving from Scripture to the Fathers and to the modern period is informed by Thomas's theology as the Pope, John Paul II, instructed in Fides Ratio. Thomas Aquinas is the model and guide of all theology. So even though we're only going to have one section, one lesson on Thomas, Thomas's way of doing theology, Thomas's way of approaching the mysteries of the Trinity, the mysteries of Christ, are going to be at work throughout our approach. After we look at Thomas specifically in his historical period and his theological teaching, we're then going to move to certain modern trends, move to the Enlightenment period, move to certain Enlightenment reactions against the Christian fullness of Christ, the fullness of the Christian teaching on Christ. Many modern theologians will, in one form or another, reject the divinity of Christ, reject the supernatural in Christ, and we want to look at those. We're also going to look at modern theologians who defend a full Christology, the full Christology of the Church. We also want to look at two specific areas of controversy, and this brings us up to Lesson 10 now, two specific areas of controversy. One, does Christ fully reveal God to us? Is Christ the unique mediator of salvation? Is Christ the unique word of revelation? And following the church, we will answer that the answer is yes, but we want to look at how that should be understood. We also want to look at questions about the beatific vision and specific questions about whether or not the man Jesus possessed the beatific vision. And again, we're going to be answering in the affirmative, but we want to look at how should we understand that. The course will complete the last two lessons, moving to what is typically called soteriology. Soteriology is the reflection on how Christ saves us. Christology is reflection on who Christ is. Soteriology is what Christ does for us. How does he save us? And we're going to look first at three classical theories of atonement, three theories about how Christ saves us, and then finally we're going to look at kind of returning back to scriptures as we begin with the scriptures and then we move through history, the teachings of the church, the catechism, other modern trends. I want to complete the course by returning back to scripture, returning back to the sacred page which is, as I said, the study of which is the soul of sacred theology, and return to how do we incorporate all of what we've done thus far into a biblical theology of the atonement, one that roots Christ in his history with Israel and roots the church in the history of Israel and Christ. So that's a brief overview of where we're going to be going in these 12 lessons. I want to begin this first lesson specifically on Christ in the Old Testament. And Christ in the Old Testament, how should we understand that? Well, I want to, when we talk about Christ in the Old Testament, I don't want to focus on simply individual passages, such as Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall give birth to a son. As important as these are for understanding of Christ, I want to look not just at those particular passages or proof texts, but look more largely at the whole narrative of Scripture. And in terms of the whole narrative of Scripture, see certain types of Christ that are in the Old Testament that help the church in her understanding of who Christ is. So that's where we're going to begin. The first thing I want to talk about is 
the idea of the kingdom of God. We know, of course, Christ's preaching was centered more than anything else on the kingdom of God. He announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That was his announcement. But in the Old Testament was where the kingdom of God was first established. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was ruled by God, Yahweh. God was the king. And God was the king who ruled his people, who ruled his people as king over them. But as we know, what happened as time went on, eventually Israel, because of her faithlessness, because of her infidelity to God's covenant, God chose a human king and the king David. And in the Davidic king, God chose to rule his people through the Davidic king. And the Davidic kings were known as the anointed one. The anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah and in Greek is Christ. So what does this mean? How should we understand this? In the Old Testament, God wanted to establish a kingdom, and in his kingdom, a kingdom that would restore what was lost in creation. At the very beginning of the story of creation, in the scenes from the garden, the scenes depicted in the early chapters of Genesis, we have a people who are holy before God, and a people that live in a land where God dwells. In a sense, it's the people, it's Adam and Eve, were created to be priests who lived in a temple where God himself dwelt. So from this very beginning, we really have that the whole kingdom of God, we have a holy kingdom, but the holy kingdom equals a holy land plus a holy people. The land is holy because God himself dwells there, just as he dwelt in the garden. And the people are holy because they have the righteousness that allows them to stand in the presence of God. First, in the Old Testament, Moses came along. God called Moses, and he, on Mount Sinai, he gave to people the law and righteousness. He gave to the people the law, and then he gave to people Mount Sinai. And if we think about this, we have Moses over here, and then we have the Holy Land is Mount Sinai, where God himself dwelt with Israel. And the people are made holy through the law the law which Moses receives from God on the mountain of Mount Sinai. Later, after Moses, we have David. King David comes. And now Israel is no longer wandering in the wilderness. Now Israel has come home to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Zion is the dwelling place. It's also another name for Jerusalem. And now it's not the law itself that makes the people holy. It's specifically the king. In Moses' time, the law made the people holy. But in David's time, it's the king who is to establish righteousness and justice. The king makes the people holy because the king is God's instrument for establishing righteousness and peace in the land. What does all this have to do with Christ? Well, it's exactly the same motif. Christ will come. Christ will make a land that is holy. Not a physical land, but a spiritual land that is holy. A land in which God dwells. And he will be the new law and also the new king, the new king who can truly establish righteousness. So we have these two themes of holiness, the holiness of God, the holy land in which God dwells in the land, God dwells with his people. But then secondly, that the people themselves are made holy. The people themselves are made holy and are righteous before God. This is done first through Moses, then through David, but above all, it's going to be done through Jesus Christ, who comes as the new king, the new son of David, who is able to truly bring about God's dwelling place with his people. 
just to give you a little foreshadowing to a future lecture on St. Paul, St. Paul will show us that Christ is here. And how is the Holy Land continued? The Holy Land is going to be continued through the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ where God dwells. The church is the body of Christ. It is the new Holy Land where God dwells. But that's not the only center of Paul's teaching. The other center of Paul's teaching is, of course, justification. And that by Christ, we are justified by faith in Christ. So by justification, we are made holy. By Paul's teaching on the body of Christ, we now dwell with God. So we see how the same theme moves forward in Paul's teachings on Christ. So that's a broad overview of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and how the kingdom was meant to be a holy kingdom with holy people who were filled with righteousness and where they lived in a holy land, a land where God dwelled. That's not specifically a geographical land, but it's a spiritual reality where man is able to dwell again with God as he was called to originally in creation. So that's the overall perspective. More specifically, what I want to look at here are now a few different types of Christ. Let me put that up on the board here. Types comes from the Greek. We have types or also known as typology. What is a type? A type is a person, a place, or a thing, or an event in the Old Testament that prefigures the reality of Christ in the New. There are countless types of Christ in the Old Testament. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the rock was Christ. And what he means there is that the rock that the Israelites found came in the wilderness, the rock that Moses struck, and then it gave them water in the wilderness. That rock was a type of Christ. Christ is the one who in the New Testament gives us the water of new life. So what are some different types that I want to look at? First, I want to look at the type of Isaac. If we go back to the famous scene of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, when Abraham is called by God to offer up a sacrifice. This is from Genesis 22. This is a very famous passage, but we remember if we look at a couple different scenes from it, we see that in that Isaac is Abraham's faithful son. We often think about it in terms of Abraham's sacrifice, that Abraham is called to sacrifice his only son. But we remember that Isaac himself was called to cooperate in that sacrifice. It is Isaac himself who is actually offered or who is going to be offered. And Isaac is the faithful son who carries the wood for his own sacrifice on the top of Mount Moriah. He asks his father Abraham, this is Genesis 22, 7. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That's Genesis 22, 8. God eventually sends his son to stop Abraham after seeing Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son. But what happens, then Abraham looks over and he sees the ram. And he sees a ram there and he sacrifices the ram. But what happened to the lamb? Abraham had promised that God himself would provide the lamb. And he named that place, that Mount Moriah, he named it Yahweh Yireh. And the latter half of Yireh becomes the root for Jeru. And the whole town is called Salem, the area of Salem. So it becomes Jeru-Salem, Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is that very place where Abraham almost offered his son Isaac. And God then pronounces a universal blessing on Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, by your descendants shall all the nations bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So God promises to Abraham because of Isaac's sacrifice and his sacrifice, a blessing that will go to all the nations. 
Abraham's descendants continue to wait, even when Abraham's descendants are in Egypt, and they are liberated from Egypt by divine action, divine intervention. And during the Exodus, they cross over the Red Sea. Before they do so, they have to celebrate the Passover, and they celebrate the Passover lamb. So the lamb again becomes the sign of God's deliverance of Israel. But the Israelites knew that God had still not provided that lamb, that the lamb that he had promised Abraham, the lamb that he had promised Abraham that he himself would provide, he has not yet been provided. So they continued to wait for it. The next time where this theme comes up is in Solomon's temple, which in 2 Chronicles 3.1, chapter 3, verse 1, we read that Solomon began to build the temple of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So on the very spot where Abraham, many centuries before, had been willing to offer Isaac, and where Isaac, the faithful son, had been willing to offer himself, we now have the very temple at which sacrifices will be offered to keep God's covenant. And yet again, the lambs are sacrificed here, but the lambs are not provided by God himself. The lambs are provided by Israel. Israel is to provide the lambs to be sacrificed at the temple. We still have to wait for God himself to provide the lamb. All of this gives the proper context then for understanding John the Baptist, his exclamation at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In John 1.29, we read, John sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is the Lamb of God? Well, this Lamb of God is the Lamb of God that Israel's been waiting for. The Lamb of God that was promised to Abraham or that Abraham prophesied back in Genesis 22. The Lamb of God that was foreshadowed in the Passover Lamb. The Lamb of God that was foreshadowed in the Lamb sacrificed in the temple. That now the Lamb of God has come and that Christ will be the Lamb of God. Christ will be the Lamb of God whose sacrifice will reunite all of Israel and all the whole world to God. And actually it's at this point that that promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. This finally happens when God himself provides the lamb. Jesus, as we know, is the faithful son who carries the wood for his own sacrifice, carries his own cross up the mountain, up the hill to Calvary. And Jerusalem would have been one of the hills in Mount Moriah, so that when Jesus is led outside of Jerusalem and crucified on the hill of Calvary, that would be one of the hills of Mount Moriah. That would have been one of the hills that Abraham had offered Isaac and that Isaac had offered himself. So Jesus is now truly the faithful son, the true Lamb of God, whose sacrifice brings down blessing, brings Abraham's blessing to all the nations, not only to the Jews, but even now the Gentiles. The next image I want to look at is from Jacob's Ladder. This is in Genesis 28, a famous image of Jacob's Ladder. We have Jacob who's fleeing from his brothers Esau, He's not quite sure what his relationship is with God yet. He's not quite sure about many things, but he dreams there. And in Genesis 28, it says he dreams there and saw a ladder that was set up. And if we remember, the ladder is set up, the bottom is at the earth and the top is in heaven. And he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And what does he say when he wakes up? We literally see there, of course, a meeting between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth meet where God has appeared to Abraham through this vision of the ladder. He says, when he wakes up, this is from Genesis 28, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? It is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He renames the place Bethel, which means house of God. 
So this place is now Bethel. It's the house of God, the gate of heaven. It's the place where heaven and earth unite through Jacob. This is the foreshadowing of the temple because the temple is also called the house of God. The temple is called the house of God and Jacob himself is renamed Israel. Jacob personifies the whole history of Israel, the history of Israel, which will include the temple. Just as God appeared that heaven and earth will meet with Jacob, heaven and earth will meet in the temple of Israel. Now, if we remember the scene of Jacob's ladder, then in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in John 1:51, when Jesus appears, when he sees a young man named Nathaniel, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is now the new Bethel. He is the Bethel from Jacob's ladder. He is the house of God. He is the new temple. So again, that promise to Jacob and Jacob becomes Israel. Jacob is the personification of the whole history of Israel. Christ himself is now that new temple. He is the new Israel who will bring about this great meeting of heaven and earth. God will again dwell with man as he began to do in Jacob. Now it is perfected in Christ as the son of man. The final type I wanted to look at today in this first lesson is simply Christ and the Davidic king. All the New Testament in Matthew and in Luke begin proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David. He is the one of the line of David. He will be the son of the most high. He will inherit the throne of David, his father. What did that mean in the Old Testament? Well, let me uh, summarize it quickly in three points. In the Old Testament, particularly in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David and he promised him three things in particular. First, he promised him that his son would build a temple. Secondly, he promised that David's son and the sons after him would have a perpetual throne, that the throne of David would last forever. And then finally, he promised that the son would enjoy a father-son relationship with God himself. So the king is meant to be the son of God, a son of God and having a unique relationship with the father. We see this in Psalm 2 where the Davidic king is declared, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, 7. So the king is meant to be a mediator of God's presence. Through the human king in the Old Testament, the presence of God is manifested. Of course, in the Old Testament, the kings are wicked. David repents and his sons, Solomon and the other sons after him, end up falling away from this vocation to be a mediation of God's presence. And we actually discover that the kings, instead of being the instrument of God's presence, become an obstacle to God's presence. The prophets have to come and condemn the kings. But nonetheless, the vision of the king is there. Christ, as we will see in the New Testament in our next lesson, Christ comes as the new Davidic king, and he is the one human king who, because he is without sin, can truly be what the Old Testament king was meant to be, namely a faithful mediator of the divine presence. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.